And if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 3. That's where we will be in just a little while. There's also a sermon page in your bulletin. If you like to take notes and kind of follow along, uh, then that may be of, uh, of help to you as well. Well, as you know, uh, if you've been here, then uh, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this series starting that's going to coincide with some small groups that are launching this week. Talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, it also kind of holds hands uh, with a book uh, that I uh, had the opportunity to write that doesn't actually release until May, but the publisher, I asked, I said, hey, can you do our church family a favor? And they said yes. So that's why we have the books here, which means you can't go and sell them on Amazon for a million dollars, because I'm sure you could get that much for them if you tried, but, um, or maybe 10 cents or something, or start a fire with them. But um, all of these things are kind of wrapping together. And just as the elders, uh, I had a conversation with them a month or two ago, and we were just talking about how can we leverage um, the book that God kind of placed in my heart to be a blessing to Highland Park. And that's really what I've been after with this. And I've had a number of people ask me um, why I decided to write this book. And what it might surprise you is to know it actually began five and a half years ago, which means I'm a really slow writer. Uh, but five and a half years ago, three things happened at the same time. The first thing that happened was I was reading a World War I book about bunkers and trench warfare. And if you remember, the, the Germans were advancing against the French, and the French were trying to fight back and kind of pushing back. And you can see here on the stage, we kind of have these makeshift bunkers. But that was a time when the, um, the, the French literally dug into the ground, and the Germans dug into the ground and made these bunkers that were so well fortified that neither side could advance without enormous casualties. And the life in the bunker was probably about as ugly as anything we can imagine. I mean, it was mud and slop and sewage and sometimes rats, sometimes dead bodies, and sometimes you were just stuck in there and you couldn't move. Uh, if you stuck your head above the bunker, you got shot by the enemy. And the one place that nobody wanted to be was that area between the two bunkers called No Man's Land. No Man's Land for people who want to die or people who were commanded uh, by their general to attack. But if you knew if you were going across No Man's Land, it was a dangerous place. And so I was thinking about these bunkers and just uh, any kind of warfare is ugly and difficult, but it seemed to be especially ugly and difficult and treacherous there in World War I, especially as I was thinking about that. And then uh, the second thing that happened was um, our country was kind of up in arms, uh, not, not physically, but figuratively, with I think it was the Affordable Care Act round one or two of our country debating that, uh, Obamacare. And I, I remember having good Christian friends come and say to me, Brian, if, if you support this legislation, you hate our country because it's going to ruin us. And then I had other good Christian friends tell me, Brian, if you oppose this legislation, you hate the poor because it's going to help those in poverty so much. And I remember just thinking like, man, apparently no matter how I choose, I'm going to be hating an awful lot of people. And I remember starting to feel like I was in no man's land, like I was going to get shot from both bunkers. And I felt like I don't, I don't want to be with you saying, if you disagree with me, you must hate all of these people, or with you, if you say you disagree with me, you hate all these people. I, I think this conversation, you know, healthcare and such, that deserves like a robust debate and discussion. I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about those things. We should. What I am saying is that 
maybe we're not supposed to kill each other about those things, that, that maybe God didn't want me to pick a side that meant that I had to try to kill the people who weren't on my side. A third thing that happened at that same time was just devotionally, I was reading through the book of Daniel. And if you remember, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, is pretty erratic at times, and to say the least, oftentimes a wicked and foolish king. And he decided he was going to kill all of the wise men in the land, in Babylon, because they could not tell him what he had dreamt. Of course, they hadn't asked Daniel yet, but the other wise men could not tell him, so he issues this decree, all the wise men are to be killed. And he finds this his kind of hitman, bounty hunter named Arioch, and he says, Arioch, go gather up all the wise men and gather them here, and we're going to kill them all. So Arioch goes out, and he finds Daniel, and he says, Daniel, you got to die. And I'm thinking, what would I do if I was Daniel? I would, you know, argue. I might run. Um, I might try to make my case against someone. I might try to get people on my side to fight. And in chapter 2, verse 14 of Daniel, when I read that, it just made me put my Bible down and walk away because it says uh, that Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. And I just had to set my Bible down and think, who does that? Wow. How did Daniel respond with wisdom and tact when there was all this emotion? And, and it's the opposite of what I saw happening in our culture. It's the opposite of what I saw happening with families who were, who were angry with each other or friendships who had a misunderstanding. I mean, there's all these really big issues that involve, you know, economics or um, race uh, or generational divides or city divides, all of these big things. But there's also just things like two friends who aren't getting along and one jumps in that bunker and they only surround themselves by people who agree with them and think like them and their goal is to defeat the people in the other bunker. And you realize this has major implications for the church because some churches have held the banner of truth and they've held it with both hands and nothing else matters. In other words, gentleness doesn't matter and love doesn't matter and kindness doesn't matter and peace doesn't matter and grace doesn't matter. And it's all about uh, proclaiming the truth as they see it, as they interpret it. It's not actually God's truth because God's truth is all of those words I just mentioned. But it's we hold to the truth, and so we get ourselves in this bunker. And if you disagree with us because my truth has become my God, I'll, I'll shoot you, I'll kill you, I'll be after you. And that's why so many churches have had these big splits and the, this big fighting and, um, and maybe one church angry at another church or one Christian mad at, a, at another Christian. And, and now with social media, all that is so amplified. And we've said truth, 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 and we're willing to beat people over the head with our version of truth. That's what some churches have become, and we have a culture who've been greatly wounded, oftentimes, by someone proclaiming to be a representative of the church because somebody felt like they had to defend the truth so much that they actually jumped in a bunker and started shooting anybody who wasn't with them. That's one danger, but there's another danger. And churches could just as easily hold the banner of peace and say, ultimately, we just want to get along. We want to be nice to people, and if truth is to ever get in the way of that, 
we need to cast it aside. So we're not so worried about reading the Bible correctly. We're not so worried about serious Bible scholarship and study. We're not not so worried about letting an ancient text tell us how to live our lives because surely we're smarter than that old book. And churches that hold this banner of peace but have dropped the banner of truth end up having nothing to offer anybody because they're the same as everybody else. Because they've forgotten that Jesus' truth is always good. It actually keeps people from self-destructing. It keeps cities from self-destructing. It actually brings life, and it brings life abundantly to people. And so I believe the great task for the Christian and for the church in our really hostile society, in a culture that beats each other up an awful lot of the time, is to figure out how do we hold this obligation, this command to try to make peace with people as often as we can? How do we seek to, to be kind to King Nebuchadnezzar and to even serve him well when he's a complete fool half the time or more? How do we at least try to be kind and at peace with him as best we can while also holding truth so that later when King Darius says, you, you can't pray to your God, Daniel says, well, I want to make peace with you, but I'm going to also hold on to truth. And if it gets me thrown into the lion's den, oh well. How do we figure out how to hold both without dropping one or the other? And for the next four weeks, that's really what we're going to explore, is how do I try to hold truth and never drop it because God gave it to us, and I don't get to write my own version of truth. Culture doesn't get to write its own version of truth. We don't get to pretend like we've figured it all out and we're smarter than what God has said. And at the same time, to never beat people over the head with it but to keep loving people and seeking peace with people as best as we can, knowing that sometimes people won't reciprocate or they'll be angry with us or they'll say, no, if you don't accept my version of truth, then I can't be at peace with you. That may be their decision, but we do all that we can to still love people and care for people. Ephesians 6 is such an important chapter, and let me just summarize part of it for you, that you don't have an enemy that is clothed in flesh and bones. In other words, you don't have an enemy who is a human being. Every human being on the planet, God says, love them. Whether they be your family member, your friend, the person sitting next to you, or the person who's in a bunker who's declared war on you, who has cut you down, who has slandered you, who works against everything you believe in, who has been cruel, you got to love them too. That person is not your enemy. That political party is not your enemy. That company is not your enemy. That person at work or school is not your enemy. And until we get that in our heads, we're never going to understand this. Because bunker dwelling is all about declaring some other human being as your enemy. And the moment we do that, we've lost all sight of what God has called us to be. We've We've totally lost sight of Jesus on the cross for people who treated him like an enemy. And so five and a half years ago, I, these three things kind of all happened at once, and I didn't aspire to write any book or anything like that. And 
I enjoyed writing short stories and making up little things when I was in high school, and I'd written a few articles and a few other things, but God impressed so heavily on me this idea that I was seeing in culture, and any time a new story broke, I was just watching it differently now. So around that time, shortly after, um, was the Trayvon Martin case, or fast forward to um, Officer Shelby and Terrence Crutcher here in Tulsa, and I, as soon as something like that broke, I watched it differently than I used to, because I would watch it with trepidation as I would see two groups of people, one jump in this bunker and one jump in this bunker. And they would idolize one person and demonize the other. And this person would idolize one person and demonize the other. And everybody, you felt it in Tulsa, was saying, come join our bunker. Come join our bunker. And as a church, that's why we were saying, no, 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 we're not jumping in a bunker with anybody. We're allowed, we're allowed to say, yes, here's how I saw this. Here's what I think should happen. But we're not allowed to jump in a bunker and declare war on somebody else. And I love that Tulsa actually made it through that time without completely imploding. And a lot of it was because of church leaders, uh, especially some of the incredible church leaders in North Tulsa who led the way, but also church leaders in South Tulsa and church leaders where we are kind of in the middle of all that. And, And kept things, enough people were willing to get in to no man's land, but you may have felt if you were there in no man's land during that time that you were getting shot from both bunkers. Because if you don't get in people's bunker, they'll shoot you. And it's like you're in the middle and you're like, you're getting shot from this person because they're not with you and they're saying you're in that bunker. And you're like, I'm not in that bunker and they're shooting you. And then they're saying, why aren't you with me? And I'm like, I'm not in that bunker. And they're like, well, that means you're in that bunker and they shoot at you and you get shot from both sides. And I kind of think that's the place where Jesus wants us. It's the place where Jesus was an awful lot. We're going to cover a few of those bunker stories with him. So five and a half years ago, I I just said, I don't have time to write a book. I've got a job, and I've got a family that's growing. But I thought I can give Thursday, early Thursday mornings. And so I just began this discipline of writing every single Thursday morning early. And that's a lot of Thursday mornings stacked up on each other. And it's the, by the way, it's the worst way ever to write a book. Don't ever do that. Um... Get it all in at once if you can, because by the next Thursday, I had no idea what I'd written the week before, and I learned a few uh, tricks along the way that helped with that. And then I finally was able, I took some vacation weeks and just wrote for an entire week, and, and then uh, I would never do that again. I would never take five and a half years to write one book if I could help it. But uh, I, the other day, I was just sketching out an outline of how all of this worked on my calendar, and I think it was God's grace that it took that long because I was introduced to some people and those people introduced me to some people and I connected with Nav Press, this incredible Christian publisher um, out of Colorado um, who came on and from the very beginning, I just wanted to take this book and be a good steward of it. I felt like God had given me something and I needed to take care of it. Kind of like a, God had handed me a little baby and said, take care of this baby. And, and I tried to, as best I could, be a good steward of what God had entrusted to me and it felt like all of a sudden when Nav Press came on, they said, we want to help take care of that little baby too. We want to be a good steward of this. And uh, I've been blessed to have a team of people that have helped the book be a, a lot better than it ever was when I was just writing it, learned a lot about writing. And uh, what I found out is this topic that we're talking about, I, I've talked to junior high students about it. Um, I've talked to people who have been in ministry for four or five decades about it. And I've talked to people from different parts of the country and different ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds and all of that, 
And it just strikes a nerve with people. I can usually not even finish kind of the introduction of what it's about before it's like, oh, yeah. Like, I feel that. That's me. Like, I feel like I'm in no man's land or I feel like I'm kind of in the bunker or my family right now is in a bunker and they hate each other right now. Or, or this is how I feel with my company. And so it's really resonating. I think it's because God is doing something that's way bigger than some unknown author from Tulsa writing a book. Um, I think God is just trying to get a hold of his people because God cares about unity. God cares about his church being one and not sacrificing the unity that God desires in his church and the witness he desires his church to have in their communities for making some kind of a point, for winning some kind of an argument that is not really an essential to the, to the faith that we have to hang on to. And so it's trying to figure out how to balance that. So Titus chapter 3 uh, is a, a, an amazing chapter. Um, all throughout the Bible, if you begin reading it with this lens, you see how much God wants his people to be together. And if, if you were starting a church and you were thinking, or you had a friend who was starting a church and you were thinking about, what, do I, what would I write to a friend who was planting a church? I mean, you might talk about you know, evangelism and, and uh, service and how to, to have volunteers engaged in serving. And you might talk about a lot of things, but it's interesting that when Paul writes to Timothy, he's talking about make sure people are together. And you warn the person who's divisive. You warn the bunker dwellers that they can't be part of your church long term if they stay there. That if they're going to try to blow up the church because of their bunkers, that is serious business. So, Titus, let's begin in chapter 3, verse uh, 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate. And always to be gentle toward everyone. Think about just for a moment. How different would the internet be if we really believed and we really lived out to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone? It would not even be the internet anymore. I don't know what it would be. It would be some cute pictures of a few cats, and that's it. <laughs> right? That would, be, that would be about it. It's amazing how much the internet can bring out the worst in people when we're not actually face-to-face with somebody. Because people wouldn't talk that way, sitting down over a cup of coffee with somebody. But, you know, the internet is actually set up. It's wired to bring about that division. All the algorithms and the research shows that because that gets more clicks. And the more clicks, the more money. Follow the dollar. And, And so it suckered so many people in. I've had a surprising amount of people tell me recently that they've been taking a fast from whatever social media they might be on. Here's the one common denominator. Whether it be they fasted for a day or a week, talked to a guy this uh, last week who'd been fasting from social media for six months, every person has said, man, that was the best thing I've done. That should tell us something. I'm, I'm not saying you have to get off social media forever. I hope some Christians stay on it to redeem it for something good. But at the same time, boy, if you're finding yourself in a bunker, maybe you need to take a little fast yourself to get some clarity. I've just found it interesting that not one person who has avoided it has regretted it. That should teach us at least something because we so quickly lose this biblical command about gentleness and being considerate and compassionate. I mean, that we ought to maybe just plaster that 
all over our computer screens. So before we type, we're even seeing that. And so it's pretty important stuff. Think about how, how, how your life might be different, how your family life might be different if words like peaceable and considerate and humility, what if those words just dominated your family tree? Would your life be different today? Would your grandparents' life have been different, your grandkids? or uh, what, what about your work? Would things at work be different if things like humility and peacemaking consider it? Verse 3 of Titus, chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Isn't that bunker living? We're, we're over here behind our bunker. Our guns are over there. And at, we're, we're hating and we're being hated. And that's our whole existence. I hate you and you hate me. And that's the way we operate. And I might even get a little adrenaline rush every time I squeeze the trigger. And every time I get shot at. And the bunkers keep moving farther and farther away. But here's the good news. Your current reality Listen to this. Your current reality doesn't have to be your future destiny. I believe that, the bottom of my heart, that if you find yourself in a bunker, that you are oftentimes having imaginative conversations with somebody over there, and you win those imaginary conversations all the time, and that you are thinking about them, and they are in your mind, and you are hating them, I'm telling you, that doesn't have to be your future destiny. You don't have to stay there. If you get really worked up every time the news comes on, you don't have to stay there. You might just need to turn off the news if that's you. If you, if you are so frustrated and so angry that anytime you talk to people, you're always like, hey, let me tell you about that person. Come join me. Let me pass this email around that's going to make you hate those people. That's about half of all the spam emails I get. It's about half of all the Facebook stuff. Hey, let me tell you why you should hate those people. That's how I see a whole other things passed around on social media. So come over here, but I'm telling you, you don't have to stay there. It does not have to be for you in the future because the beautiful thing about God is he talks about our sin and it feels painful, kind of rips off the Band-Aid and he says, but now let me, let me help you heal up a little bit because Jesus comes to us with grace Time and time again. Skip down to verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these sayings so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Anybody involved in a stupid and foolish argument? Our family quotes that proverb a lot. Avoid foolish and stupid arguments. And every once in a while, one of our kids will be like, hey, this is a foolish and stupid argument. And they'll yell it out from the van when we're driving somewhere. And it's so easy to get involved in those foolish and stupid arguments. And sometimes we just need to breathe and take a step back and look and say, like, where am I here? Did I just jump in a bunker? Am I holding both peace and truth? At the same time, maybe I am. Sometimes I'm the guilty party too. You know, the moment I lose sight of God's mission, 
the moment I lose passion in my love for Jesus is the moment I'm really susceptible to jumping into a bunker somewhere. Anybody else like me? Chapter 3, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Oh, my word. You catch that? Now, now Paul's not writing to Titus in how he talks to the world. This is, this is for the church here. Because there's all kinds of divisive and sinful things for people who have never claimed to follow Jesus. And we have no standard to hold them accountable to, so we shouldn't even try. We should just love them and pray for them and, and share the gospel with them and pray that they would come to follow Jesus. So we're not talking about anybody who's not following Jesus. We're talking about the church. And Paul says if they are divisive, if they're in a bunker, if they're bringing people into the bunker with them, those are the most dangerous people here, so that they are declaring war on their fellow brothers and sisters. You warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you kick them out. Why? Well, if you were fighting in an army and you had somebody that kept pulling a grenade and tossing it amongst their own soldiers, you can't let that person stay there for very long, right? And that's why Paul is really, really serious here about this. Paul's words, they seem even harsh, but words, think about these words, cantankerous, feisty, argumentative, disagreeable, bad-tempered. Sometimes we try to think of some word to make it a little bit nicer, but Paul says these folks are divisive. It's a big deal because I care about the church. I care about you. I care about God's people. I have this really annoying habit of telling people I'm good when I'm not really good. Let me give you an example. Go over to research to run a quick errand. Um, for my wife because maybe she's making my favorite Indian dish and she needs some, you know, rare spice. And so she sends me over there. I can find the bananas and milk, but everything else is like a mystery to me. And so I walk into research and maybe it's one of those times that an employee actually sees the confusion on my face looking for some rare Indian spice. And the employee will say, can I help you? And I say, no, I'm good. I don't know why I say that. Like, what is the problem with me? And I say, I'm good. And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, you know, um, actually, I'm not good. <laughs> Can you help me, please? I can't find this thing. Or usually I, I call Beth. And if I call her and I'm at the grocery store, she's like, okay, go to aisle three. That's how she answers. Go to aisle three. Look on your right. Um, it's dumb to do that at the grocery store. But it's really dumb to do that in life. It, it's really dumb to think, I'm in a bunker, and I'm hating people, and I'm being hated. I'm good. No thanks, Jesus. I don't need you to revolutionize my life from the inside out. I don't need you to come in and get rid of this anger and this malice that's built up inside of me. I don't need you to come and just to, to clean up all of the wounds in me and the wounds that I'm causing. I'm good. I'm fine. No. Instead, we need to say, God, I need your help because my pride can hijack the healing that God wants to do in my life. It can do the same in yours. This morning, you got these sandbags, and uh, in every row, 
down here and up there as well, and also uh, on the tables, and if you're sitting in the overflow, there's some Sharpies. There's not enough Sharpies for every single person, but we figured we were a church and we could share. And what we would like you to do is if you know that you're in a bunker and you can identify it, then we want you just to share that Sharpie with your row and just write it down. It may not write real neat, but you'll know what you wrote. And then share that Sharpie with somebody else. It, maybe you're going to write, um, you know, family. Or maybe you're going to write job or politics. Or maybe as I've been talking about, where, why are you hating someone? Or how are you in some bunker? And just saying that's the enemy over there. Instead of just realizing that Satan is our only enemy. That any enemy other than Satan that you have declared, you're, you're in a bunker. And I just want you to take a few moments to think about that, pray about that, and then just write that on that sandbag if you can, if you can think about it. What we would like you to do with these little bags is to take them home with you and put them somewhere where you'll see them for this week. Because for the next four weeks, we're going to pray that we can leave some of our bunkers, that we can hold both truth and peace at the same time, that we can follow Jesus in that way. And uh, leaving our bunkers can get difficult, but maybe this reminder, and if you didn't get one of these yet, we've got more out there and you can write on it later if you didn't finish or you can finish up right now. That's fine, but we want this to be a reminder at your home every day where you see it. And some of you are in small groups or are going to have family discussions about it, and that can be part of that discussion as well as praying for each other of where are we in a bunker. When we look at the pride and the disunity and the anger, the bunkers around us, it can get kind of discouraging and depressing, honestly. But we have some good words, and I want to leave you with these good words from Titus chapter 3. Up at verse 4, it says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Did you notice the past tense there? That Jesus already came. He already sacrificed. He's already shown mercy. The mercy for us to leave our bunkers and to leave the hate that's welled up inside of us. And my prayer has been that maybe while you learn and we as a church learn to dance in this no man's land, to be right here, that it'll actually feel like that. That instead of just feeling like we're dodging bullets, we're dancing together because Jesus has called us to do this together. This morning, if, if you've never said yes to following Jesus, we would love to talk with you about that. We'd love to pray with you about that. We'd, if you would like to study with somebody this week on your Connect card, you can mark that. and We'd be glad to meet with you privately and just open up God's word and study about what does it mean to follow Jesus. And if you would like prayer about that, even right now during this next song, you're welcome to come up here, over here to this front row, just on this side, and we'll have some folks who would love 
to pray with you and, and talk with you. If you would, would you stand and let me pray for us? God, we, we thank you that you demonstrated how to live in no man's land. You got shot from all angles, and yet because of your great love and because of your commitment to the truth, you endured that. And we pray that we can follow you in that same way and learn to love you and love each other as you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.